Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C., and with me today is Nathan Fox. And Nathan, are you in San Francisco today? You're not, right? No, um, I'm at my folks' house. I'm uh, on, they're in Hawaii, and I'm on the Haley duty. Haley's my niece, and so I'm going to go pick her up from school today and hang out with her tonight, drop her off at school tomorrow. Um, yeah, it's a nice little break. I'm here in the, the only unfortunate part is that I'm out of the perfect San Francisco weather, and I'm into the uh, kind of foggy Central Valley weather. But, uh, <laughs> so... Uh, San Francisco is usually foggy. No, not not in January. Not um, in January. Ja- okay. No, no. The January February is like sometimes the nicest days come in January and February. Like for the month of January, we had about twenty five perfect days and a few not so perfect days. But I mean, it's been shirt sleeves like every day. I've been playing golf in shorts. Um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been nuts. I mean, I'm like literally going to the beach, walking on the beach, uh, putting my feet in the water. It's like, it's been, it's been nuts, but that happens a lot in January in San Francisco. People don't, don't realize that when they think San Francisco is cold, it's because they've gone there in August and expected it to be hot with shorts and a t-shirt. And then they get, they get screwed with the fog and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Winter's really nice in San Francisco. Cool. But your parents are in Hawaii. My parents are in Hawaii, yeah, so they're they're somewhere even nicer. Now I'm at their house, which is kind of uh, stuck in the fog. Cool. But, uh, yeah. Well, uh, so it sounds like things are good, and you're going to uh, – so you're just there for a few days, and then you got to go back for LSAT stuff or what? Oh, yeah. I mean, I taught last night, and I teach tomorrow night, so I'm just here for a, about a 36-hour quick, quick visit with my niece and my sister. Cool. Um, all right. Well, we have a lot of good questions today. Um, should we just jump into them? That'd be best. I think so. Yeah, okay. let's do it. So the first question we have here is, um, these are from students that are preparing presumably for the February test, which is just a few days from now. And someone says, okay, wait, I, I've had a sudden last minute drop in scores. What should I do? Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, of course, uh, by the time people hear this, it'll already, the February LSAT will have come and gone. But uh, this advice is going to apply to you whenever you take the test. And it's actually, I think it might be good to think about this well in advance so that you can plan your study strategy to uh, lead up to whatever test you're going to take. My first bit of advice would just be to relax. And it can be hard to force yourself to do that. But a lot of times, a sudden last-minute drop in scores means nothing at all. And I mean that quite literally. Um, people will say, hey, I, I, I took a test and I went down a couple points, and I took another test and I went down another couple points, and they think it's an emergency. And it could be well within the realm of just sort of natural statistical variations up and down. So the worst thing to do is to get into the downward spiral based on a couple of bad data points. I think students need to ignore those initial bad data points, keep focusing on something like the average of their last five practice test scores rather than, you know, their last one practice test score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, really just not worry about it too much. I, I think that's maybe the biggest thing I would have to say. What What do you think? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, uh, it's, it's more about the scores you've been getting overall. The other thing is if your scores really are dropping, and sometimes they might even be significant, the more significant they are, the more I would think you're just burned out and need to take a break, which is really hard for a lot of people to do right before the test. They feel like they've got to do everything they can do, every waking moment, they have five minutes, they think they should be doing the LSAT. And ironically, that actually may be hurting them more than helping them. And if they just stopped and did nothing LSAT-related for a couple days and then took another test, not that I would necessarily suggest that given how close we are to the exam, but if they did, they'd most likely see their score bounce right back up. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. I find myself counseling people to take uh, time off in the week before the test, especially, you know, 
if you haven't put in the time already, if you haven't been studying for a couple months, then you're just not going to be ready to get the very best score you possibly could. So it's it's hard to give, you know, it's hard to say, oh, don't study when they're like, well, but I've only been studying for two weeks and I have to study. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just, those people put themselves in a bad situation to begin with. So for them, it's kind of like, I don't know, do what you want to do, but I would probably be encouraging you to be rescheduling um, or at least taking it and planning on taking it again one more time and, and having a more lengthy ramp up. Yeah. But sure, the burnout absolutely does happen. Um, people work so hard. I mean, I, I'm amazed, continuously amazed by how earnest all my students are. And yeah, I mean, they're a bunch of hardworking folks and they will totally just work themselves right into the ground. People do crazy things like taking full practice tests after a long day of work. You know, I had a student just the other day tell me that he had done a five section practice test that he started at 9.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not putting yourself in the best situation for success. And so I'm not surprised at all there to see some scores dropping just because of lack of interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the, a few weeks ago I had someone who came in and they seemed really tired. It was a Saturday morning practice exam, and I guess they had been w- at work until like 2 or 3 in the morning. And I told them, here's the test, take it home and do, do not do it right now. And they really wanted to do it. They felt like, oh, I, I need to do it in a proctored setting and so forth. And all those things are important, but... Um, it's more important to just go get some rest and take the test when you're more likely to actually see where you're at and not get a low score and then be wondering how much of this is because you need to work on the LSAT or because you're just tired. So Yeah, you need to set yourself up for success. I mean, you need to practice being successful. So the way that you practice being successful is you only do the test or especially you only score yourself when you're happy, rested, focused, and really want to do it. You know, that's that's the uh, position you want to put yourself in on test day. The way you put yourself in that position on test day is by also putting yourself in that position on the days that you do uh, your scored practice tests. The good thing, I guess, is that there is an opportunity for miraculous improvement on the day of the test. If burnout really is your issue, um, frequently you will have more focus on the day of the actual test than you did on your practice test days. Uh, might be a little bit of adrenaline. Of course, that can kind of cut both ways. But for some people, um, I was one of them. I definitely scored higher on my actual test than I did on any of my practice tests. Um, I think it's just because I knew on the on the day that it counted. I knew that it counted, and I wasn't I wasn't daydreaming. You know, I, I was I was really fully engaged that day. Yeah. Um, I guess that's not a burnout story, though, because I definitely did not study enough to uh, come anywhere close to burnout. Um, I'm a big advocate of doing, you know, an hour or two a day for however long it takes to get ready for this thing. And I'm really not an advocate of people doing these last minute crash courses, you know, trying to cram it all in in a week or two. Yeah, definitely not. And, And especially not. I, uh, here's another story. You know, I had a student who um, she's really smart. She's doing quite well on her practice tests, but she has a bad record, a bad score on her record from December for whatever reason. She didn't do as well on December as she, as her practice test indicated she could have. So she's retaking the test, and then this week um, she's texting me in a panic, uh, like on Monday, because she is coming down with the flu. And I'm thinking, well, okay, you might be. Like you could be fully recovered from the flu uh, by Saturday, and if not, or if you're not recovered by Friday, you can just withdraw on Friday. So that would suck, but it's not the end of the world. Um, illness does happen, and that's kind of why they have this withdraw uh, option. But her panic was because she was not going to be able to study this week. Yeah, and I'm I'm just thinking, you know. You were ready to take the December test. You didn't have that great of a day, but you were definitely ready. And then you've been studying since then. You spent most of January studying, and your practice tests are where you would like them to be or close. And if not, you're not likely to get them there in this final week anyway. 
So maybe getting sick and taking the entire week off might be exactly the right thing for you to do. Yeah. Um, at least maybe you can try to have that kind of a mindset rather than, you know, because she was doing like the, well, fuck my life. I'm, this is terrible. I'm, I'm done, <laughs> you know, kill me now. <laughs> and uh, part of that was probably the flu talking, which I definitely understand. But uh, as far as she, she just doesn't need to totally crash on this LSAT if she, you know, she, she doesn't need to talk herself into that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting is um, I know I introduced the idea of burnout and, and then we've been talking about that. But as we were talking, I was thinking there, there's actually kind of two different kinds of burnout. One is, is the one that I think you've been talking about where you're literally like drained and maybe this is the same thing, but there's this other kind of, I don't know if burnout's the best word, but it, it's like people do, they do, they're thinking so hard about the sections that they're taking in the weeks, especially the week or two before the test, that they, they take a section, they review it, and they think really hard about it. And, and I think that they're, they're thinking so much that when they, they go into the next section or next test that they take that week, they, they try, they're trying to perfect everything. And in an effort to do so, they overthink really simple questions and they, they mess up. Whereas when you take that break, you get out of that sort of like over analytical like mentality because it's, you've been removed from it for a few days. And so that it's not so much that they're necessarily burned out. Like they can physically keep doing stuff. It's just that like their mind is in the wrong place in terms of how they're thinking about it. Just really overthinking. Yeah, I think that that happens too. I mean, that one it does happen to me with my golf game. You know, I've probably said this on the podcast before, but I'm kind of a dorky amateur golfer. Um, and I've and I've I played since I was a kid, so I'm like halfway decent as far as normal golfer people go. And um, the one thing that will surely ruin my golf game is just if I play too much. Not because I'm tired physically. It's not golf is easy. It's not breaking rocks. Um, but the thing that happens is I totally start overthinking everything that I'm doing out there Mm -hmm. because if I've played for a week straight, that's definitely too much. I'll be tinkering. I'll be trying to do different things. I'll be thinking about stuff other than, okay, how do I get the ball in the hole? Instead, I'll be thinking about these stupid mechanical things. And those mechanical things might be great to think about if you're on the driving range practicing, but those mechanical things are not, they need to be ingrained through practice, mm-hmm. they can't be manipulated when you're actually doing the actual competition. Yeah, I think there's a lot about that on, like that on the LSAT, right? I bet, I bet you and I, people would might be shocked to hear what's actually going through our heads when we were reasoning through one of these questions. I mean, sometimes, yeah, it'll sound, it would sound like uh, LSAT teacher mode, mm-hmm. but other times, I think it would sound like just this sort of intuitive kind of, well, we can see right through it and just see to the answer. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's how it feels if once, once, you're, once you're in the zone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, totally. I, I can see people getting way overly mechanical, way over formulaic because they've practiced too much. And the best thing, yeah, for my golf game, the best thing I can do when I get into that, that situation is to just take as much time off as necessary. And sometimes to take a long time off um, I'll I'll put the clubs in the closet for six weeks fairly frequently and come back to it. And because I've put in so much time throughout my life, then that pays off immediately after one of those long breaks. And I just go back to sort of swinging easy. Um, maybe there's a, uh, an analogy there for LSAT. Yeah. Test takers. I hope so, because I have been saying it in my classes for like eight years. So if it's total <laughs> bullshit, then... Uh, <laughs> No, I think it's totally legitimate because I do see it happen frequently where people just stop and then they go take another test. They, usually it's they come back to a Saturday morning proctored exam because yep. that's sort of like, okay, I got to get back into this. And their score is like, oh, it's higher than, than it was my last few scores. And, oh, what have you been doing? Well, I haven't been doing anything. So I, I feel like I hear that all the time. Yeah, that 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 totally makes sense. Hey, do you um do practice tests every Saturday while you have your classes running? Not at the beginning. Uh, the beginning, 
it's like every other Saturday, and then for the okay. last uh, like six weeks, it's every Saturday. Okay, just curious. Yeah, I've been. I do kind of periodic Saturdays, but it's been a bit of a hassle to administer just because my students are always struggling to remember which Saturdays have a test and which Saturdays don't have a test. I've been thinking about just making it every Saturday. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so the next question is a little more specific, and it's kind of related to this topic, but uh, the student says, I have had, or I have a 153 on my official LSAT record. Um, I've been scoring in the low 160s. My goal is a 164 or higher because I'd like to get a scholarship at a good school or get into a top school. I've hit 165 before, but it's been several weeks. I'm committed to studying for the June LSAT, so this person is signed up for the February LSAT within a few days here, and they're committed to studying for the June LSAT. Should I take it in February, given the fact that I have this one on my record and my scoring right now, should I take it in June or maybe both or something else? Thoughts, Nathan? Sure. Um, uh, well, I could make that case both ways. Uh, which probably my students would not be surprised to hear me say. Okay. Um, you know, just that's an important skill on the logical reasoning, right? To be able to make the case uh, both ways, be able to see both sides of the argument, pros mm -hmm. and cons, yeah. strengtheners and weakeners. Um, just to correct one thing that you said, and you said uh, my goal is 164 or higher. I don't know why you did that, but it's uh, oh. in the, in the <laughs> email. It's the goal is 165 or higher, and it's I've hit 165 before. So it's a small thing, but just yeah, to yeah, no, that's, no, thank you. Um, I can't read. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, so, okay, so I, when I first saw this, my snap judgment was take it. You're already signed up. You have scores in your practice history. It says, I've been scoring in the low 160s. Well, low 160s? Okay, that's what, 160, 161, 162, 163, something? I don't know. And if your goal is 165 or higher, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that someone who has been scoring 162 or 163 is going to score 165 on the February test. You're already signed up. You're already paid. You've already been doing your practicing. Low 160s is a hell of a lot better than the 153 that you have on your official LSAT record. So I would say, in a lot of cases, I would tell people to go ahead and take it in in February, okay. um, and then yeah, take it again in June if you don't get a score that you think you're capable of, or if you you know if you have another bad day or whatever, then yeah, of course you're going to take it again in June. But I'm assuming that this student has two attempts left at least because it just says I have a 153 on my official record. Okay. I'm assuming mm -hmm. that that's the only attempt on record. Yeah. My advice would change dramatically if the student had more than one attempt on record. If the student had only one more attempt, uh, then I would say, how serious are you about that 165 uh, goal? I mean, we've talked about this before, Ben, that I kind of think that these specific numerical goals are a little bit misguided. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, because I don't know what the point is of shooting for 165. I mean, maybe you could do higher than that, so then you might have shortchanged yourself by having a goal of 165. Also, some people will never reach 165 no matter how long they study, and some people might prevent themselves from getting to 160 because they have this unreasonable goal of 165. So I don't like the goal to begin with. But for this specific student, again, 153 on record... Goal of 165, you've been scoring in the low 160s. Um, it, you know, it's not likely, it, it's possible, but it's not likely that you're going to score higher on the actual test than you did on your practice test scores. It, it says I've hit 165 before, so that's, that's, that's pretty good. But um, I would just say, you know, look at your last five, the average of your last five practice test scores, What's that? That's the best predictor of what you're going to get uh, on any given test administration. So I could see telling someone, especially if this was their last attempt, I could see telling someone, you need to get your scores to at least the level that you would be happy with before you should sit for the test because magic is not going to happen or it's not guaranteed to happen on the day of the test. Anne Levine tells people, uh, she was in my class the other night and told people that she recommends 
getting your practice test scores to at least three points higher than whatever number you need uh, because just to protect against the possibility of having a slightly bad day on the day of the test, I don't think that's horrible advice. Yeah, um, I mean, if you can do it, yeah. definitely. Um, sometimes that's... Right, except the thing is, I don't know anybody who's ever really been able to do that because if someone, if this guy was scoring 168 all of a sudden, then his new goal would be 168 or 170, yep. right? I mean, yep. once you get there, then you're you're not going to be happy with it. You're going to definitely stretch for the next thing. So, yeah. Uh, um, anyway, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that you've said. I would, I would just add to that too. I mean, this is something that's sort of unique to the February and June test, and maybe this is this is all changing too with with all these law schools now extending the time that you can apply, but. If this person, we don't know here, but if they are really determined to go to law school this fall, well, then they have to take it in February. So that would sort of, you know, push it them towards February. Uh, but he says he's committed to studying for June, so um, presumably he's open to going the fall of 2016. In which case, I guess it would just really depend on how important that 165 was to him. If it was really, really important. Then maybe saving those two shots left um, is is something to consider because he could take yeah. it in June and then shoot for, for September if necessary. Yeah, we're we're gonna get into a discussion about the the cycles, right? Um, maybe we should do that that item next or fold it into this one. Sure. Yeah. But um, if if this student is open to the possibility of pushing it out to the next cycle, and if this student doesn't totally want to kill themselves every time they study for the LSAT. You know, I've had students who say who have legitimately said, you know, I don't I don't hate it so much. It's not breaking rocks. I'm happy to I'm happy to sit and do the LSAT. I can study for as long as necessary. If that's this and and, and I'm in no huge rush to go to law school, if that's this student situation, then that makes me much more likely to say, "Hey, push it off. Push it off. What's the rush? Why don't you just Plan on taking it in June and or uh, the fall test. Is it September or October? Oh, you're right. September this, this year. year huh? it's, uh, it's a, yeah, last uh, last year was September. This year it's going to be October. Oh, this year it's October. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a strategy where if you've got two attempts left, a strategy where you take June and uh, October if necessary, and then you can still apply at the beginning of the next cycle. Um, yeah, still be very early. I think a lot of people have that misconception too that somehow the October test is late, which it's well. I think it maybe used to be. I mean, it's still not first in line. You know, it's not first in the pile. Um, and I, I think there is some value to that. I, it's a, it's a continuous thing. Okay, I, I, I do not think that the October test is very early in the cycle. I think that the October test might be early in the cycle, but it's not as early as the people who really, really have their shit together. And if I was applying to Harvard, Stanford, Yale, I would want to give the appearance of really, really having my shit together. So. Uh, yeah. I'm still. I think there's a value to applying on the very first day of the cycle, um, even though yes, of course, they're pushing the deadlines back quite a bit, and that that's that's loosening up quite a bit. But um, anyway, for this student deciding about February or June or both, it really just kind of depends on calendar stuff and how many attempts he has remaining. Yeah. So the the next question that kind of tagged onto this, given the drop. And applicants this cycle and the drop just to I, isn't it around like 50% compared to what it was three years ago that's the number I kind of have in my head I don't know if you have a different number or yeah when I looked at it last it was I thought it was maybe a longer it's actually a longer decline than that that the the high was actually more like when I was starting law school which was in 2008 okay uh-huh so and you know time flies. So um, I, yeah, I actually or actually the year after that I think was the high, two thousand the starting class of two thousand nine if I'm not mistaken was the high or at least it was at Hastings. So we're looking at like actually six or seven years back now from the high. But yes, I I do think it's like fifty percent drop in law school applicants. Yeah. So given that huge drop and now the schools desperate need to fill seats and to 
do all this stuff. People are asking, should I apply now for the fall of 2015 or at the beginning of the next cycle for the fall of 2016? Um, any thoughts on that? Um, it's a buyer's market. And I think the answer is yes to both. I think the answer is it's going to be awesome this year and it's very likely to be awesome again next year. Um, you know, when you're applying now, yes, yes, they're pushing the deadlines out. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And yes, you could totally get in this year and you could totally get great offers. But this is not Black Friday and this is not like the last chance you have to get this kind of a deal. Um, schools, I've heard of at least a few schools that are actually going to accept the June LSAT this year. Wow. Um, I've also heard of people making last minute renegotiations and, and, you know, getting a better offer off of a wait list mm -hmm. in like August um, <laughs> that, or that was the last cycle, but yeah. that's, that's been happening. Yeah. And, um, just, okay. So, so fine. So yes, you could squeak in this year, but you're less likely to get scholarship money going that route. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. You're much more likely to get your scholarship money earlier in the cycle. Yeah. If getting in is your only is your only uh, concern, then sure, uh, who cares? Throw in your applications this year, and if you get in where you want to go, then go. But if money is part of your concern, I do not think I would be shoving in late applications. I mean, I've I've just already got so many students who have for months now been emailing me about the offers that they've got. And those students have been renegotiating their scholarships and getting better offers, and they're they're getting themselves locked into a really sweet deal. When you're applying late, I think the schools are going to assume that you are not as savvy as the students who applied earlier in the cycle. They're going to negotiate tougher with you on price, and most applicants are going to lose that negotiation just because they're naive and they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, and the reality is you literally don't have as much leverage, right? Because if you apply earlier, you're going to have more time to wait for schools to accept you. So when you do start talking with schools, you have other schools that you can go to. Whereas when you're applying late, you're going to hear back from not as many schools, maybe only one or two, maybe only one, in which case you have no leverage. Yeah, I, I, I'm emailing students you know, this week that are like, uh, one student is in at Stanford, in at Berkeley, full ride to Duke, a uh, bunch of other offers, and she's you know she's thinking about leveraging those offers against one another and and uh, asking people for more money, and she's been thinking about this for weeks and months, and she has this whole strategy, and then if you're the applicant who's going to take the February LSAT and and shove in an application in March. Um, yeah, you you just don't have as much time. You don't have as much leverage. The schools know that you applied late, mm -hmm. and they know that you don't have as many options on the table. So they're just not going to try to bid as high for you as they would have if it were earlier in the cycle. Yeah. So to be clear, it's still a, a buyer's market for sure, just not yes. as good as you wait until maybe next cycle. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if I if okay, if you were a hundred percent ambivalent about when you start law school. Mm -hmm. I think it's a no-brainer that I would apply at the beginning of next cycle rather than at the end of this cycle. I don't care how good this cycle is. Uh, they're desperate now. I actually think they're going to be, I mean, they're they're setting themselves up to be more desperate next cycle, aren't they? When they push their deadlines out? <laughs> um, you know? Uh, it, how do you see? I, I guess I'm not sure how. Because they're, they're pushing well, them because, out right now to, are you saying at right. the beginning of the next cycle because the deadlines are so late? I think the schools are going to put are going to be putting themselves in a tough position. If a school decides, you know, we used to never accept the the February LSAT, but now we're going to start accepting the February LSAT, then a certain oh, all those percentage are going to apply now instead of next yeah, year. Yeah, they're robbing themselves of next year's class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and you know, especially for the schools that are pushing it out even to the June LSAT. Um, they're going to be in a precarious position where they're accepting an application from someone in June or July who definitely would have been applying at the beginning of the next cycle. And instead now they're going to ram them into this year's class. Yeah. And then, yeah, standing on September 1st when their class starts, I mean, they're already unhappy with the class that they're admitting this year. Yeah. 
and now they've got those same 150 empty seats staring them in the face, and now they have a much shorter time, a much shorter cycle to, to fill it, or just less less applicants in the hopper to fill it, because there's going to be far fewer people applying at the very beginning of the next cycle. Yeah, and as long as they feel like it's empty, um, that's that's going to help too in terms of driving them driving their offers. By the way, I want uh, the person you just mentioned, um, Stanford. What did you say, Berkeley? Uh, the, her, the best offers that I saw were Stanford uh, and Berkeley. No money from either of those schools. A full ride to Duke. Um, a couple other good offers, though. Uh, I'm just I'm curious what her LSAT score was because I feel like when I go onto the LSAT GPA calculators, there are various ones online. I still feel like they're suggesting your score and GPA has to be higher than what I'm hearing anecdotally. Now I know it's just random scores here and there, but when I hear 161 at UVA in Georgetown, 162 at UVA in Georgetown, when I see two 169s at Harvard and Yale, both. Um, I just think uh, I've also heard locally. This is just these schools are lower ranked, so I don't know what they mean about everything. But um, uh, UDC, which is a local school, and, and Howard, I've heard from multiple people that that those schools have told them, "Hey, just get a 140, and we'll 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 let you in." And I was thinking, 140. I mean, that's shameful. I, I, I'm sorry. That's that's shameful. I mean, those. That's an extreme example. That's on the lower end. But you know, 161 for UVA and stuff like that. Like, I'm just hearing scores that blow me away. Are you hearing the same thing, or that I, I'm hearing? Yeah, I'm. I'm hearing. Um, I'm hearing bad things from the wrong people. I, I got a phone call yesterday from a student who read one of my books and she called because my number is in all of my books. Um, and she called and wanted to say hi and say thanks and whatever. And mm -hmm. she also wanted to ask me frantic last minute questions about the February LSAT. Um, very thick, um, I presumed Mexican accent. I guess that's just because I'm in California. I should say Spanish speaking accent, very thick, uh, complaining of LSAT scores in the you know 120s 130s mm -hmm. um english obviously not her first language nothing wrong with that but it does make the lsat more difficult and i forget what school she was talking about oh some new school in texas i forget i, I don't know what the school was but she, some new school in texas and they told her that all she needed was to get a 140 if she get a 140 then they will admit her to law school and that to me seems that's the shameful part, I think, because she just seems like somebody who is. I don't want to crush her dream, and I'm not saying that she that she can't do it and that it's impossible. But the odds, I would put the odds very high that she's going to struggle in law school if she barely scrapes her way to a 140, and that you know just it doesn't make sense to her. She was talking about how many of the words on the LSAT don't make sense to her. I worry about those folks. I worry about their ability to pass the bar exam. Yeah. It, it just, I'm, I don't know. I, does it, is it elitist of me to say that? I guess you could accuse me of that. But I. it's really just, I. I don't want people to incur these massive amounts of debt for a degree that might not be of any value to them. Yeah, I think it really comes down to whether that person has a, like sometimes I've talked to people who they are just, they have a job already and they are just getting their JD to then further that and they don't care where they get their JD. And in that case, I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, you know, you get into a lower ranked school, you get your, your qualification and then for whatever reason, because you work in the government, where you work um, wherever, and they're saying, look, just have a JD and we're going to pay you more or does something for their career path. That's one thing. But I think a lot of these people going into a lower tier law school with no plan of what they want to do with that degree are going to find themselves just paying for a degree that can't give them any sort of work. Yeah, I, I guess I should start asking that question right off the bat. You know, who do you have a job lined up after law school? 
because you're absolutely right. If you're if you've been a paralegal there for ten years and they're begging you to get your JD so that you can go, you know, to the to court for them so that they don't have to mm-hmm. uh, to do the same kind of work that you've already been doing for five years and they know you can do it. Then yeah, of course, who cares what law school you go to? And uh, I mean, I guess you are still going to have to pass the bar though. Yeah. And um, that's not insurmountable, but you do hear these stories of the horror stories of people who took the bar exam 17 times. And I don't know that that's a good route to be going down either. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, for, for the people who already have a job, that's a totally different story. But it seems to me that most people that I talk to do not. Uh, it's more common that people that I talk to don't even know any lawyers and are just like trying to, they, they think that this is going to be this transformative experience for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, taking on $160,000 of debt is going to be transformative, <laughs> but not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, not in a good way. No, sorry, I don't mean, that's just, that sounds overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a, it's a mortgage in a lot of places Yeah, and, and you're, you don't get to live underneath it. So I just would tell people to be really careful if they're applying to schools with, with that low of an LSAT score. It just worries me. There's always exceptions. Um, I'm not, I, you know, I don't want to be the guy that's going to totally crush your dreams, but I, I do want to maybe put a little kernel of doubt in there so that you can go and start asking better you know questions or talking to more people about it before you just dive in yeah well when i hear schools that are lower ranked saying it will take you with a 140 i'm it just my my gut reaction is okay i mean this is true for all the schools but they're just they're just they don't care about what's going to happen to you once you leave to me it just sounds like they're trying to get another thirty thousand dollars this this year from you and hopefully they can get you to stay for the three years but they just want that money so they can yeah pay for whatever they're right now suffering because these schools are suffering right now they don't have enough money yeah and they are you know imminently in danger of closing by the way yeah and accepting loss accepting students into law school with a 140 lsat is uh that is one of it's not the only path to going out of business as a law school but it is a path to going out of business as a law school, right? I yeah, mean, you're going to stay in business this down. year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Kicking the can down the road. Um, three years later, that might come back to roost when your bar passage rate is just abysmally low. Mm-hmm. And you know you end up losing your accreditation or you end up just closing your doors entirely. That's not going to be good for for the the students who went there. So, yeah, I agree. I think in a lot of cases um they are less than interested in each individual student and a lot more interested in each individual student's tuition. Yep. All right. Well, um so the next question is one I get a lot, I don't know if you get this a lot, but why is the February LSAT not disclosed and what does that even mean to be not disclosed? So, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is probably a quick one. Um, And of course, we both get this question continuously. Um, The fact that it's not disclosed just means that they don't release the actual test questions. That's the definition, I guess, of not disclosed. You'll never get to see the test form. I never got to see my test form for my 179 that I got back in February of 2007. Okay. It's too bad. I would love to see those logic <laughs> games. I mean, I would love to see. I'd love to see what the what they were. You know, I, I would just love to see the test that yeah. I that I got it done on because I, I I have no idea. I, I thought that the logic games were extremely easy, um, but that might just be that I was like in the zone and made a couple of inferences. Um, other than that, it means totally nothing to me. Um, the test I don't think is any different. I don't think it's easier or harder. I do think that maybe they reuse some of those questions they administer on a February test and then don't release the form and then maybe re- reuse those questions down the road. Uh, that, um, that's what I understand. I, I actually, I don't know yeah. where I read this, but I thought they actually reuse the, maybe the entire test as it's been established for, for international administrations oh, oh, and stuff oh. like that. So. Yeah, that could be. Maybe they convert it to Spanish and administer it in Puerto Rico. <laughs> they don't. Um, there's no. <laughs> what are you talking about? 
I think there is. There's a Spanish Elsa? I think that this is a brand new thing, and I don't know anything about it, but I believe that there is an LSAT in Spanish that is administered only in Puerto Rico for people who are going to go to law school in Puerto Rico. I could be totally making that up. <laughs> wow, I've never heard of it. I mean, I didn't make it up. I heard it somewhere. It could be totally bullshit. I, I thought that I had uh, I thought that I had Googled it, whatever. Listeners, write in and tell us that we're wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Leave Ben alone. Ben didn't say it. I did. <laughs> well, it's Nathan at foxlsat.com. <laughs> I welcome all kinds of criticism. Yeah. What? Yeah. Ben? So now, now I mean, like, if that's true, I almost want to like try to learn Spanish and then try to take the LSAT and then feel what it's like to, to be a non-native speaker because it, it seems rather painful. Um, I could imagine that would be the most horrifying thing ever. <laughs> I. Oh my god. Did I tell you that I gave up on trying to learn Spanish? Uh, no. You, yeah, I didn't know my trip trying. to Puerto Rico. Oh, you, you tried to, while you are in Puerto Rico? Well, I've tried before. I mean, I've been to Ecuador. I, I took Spanish in high school. I live in California where tons of people speak Spanish. Yeah. But I just never, I never really latched onto it, okay. despite, you know, my A's in Spanish in high school, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I never, I just never learned it. And I, this, I tried in Puerto Rico, but in Puerto Rico, unfortunately, everybody speaks English oh, and my yeah. Spanish is bad enough that if I come with, you know, hola, como estas, then they immediately are like, Hey, how you doing? Like, don't even go. try, buddy. Yeah. And, um, I, I came to the realization, perhaps this is just me being lazy, but I do believe in kind of quitting things that you're not that good at. And, uh, I've tried this so many times. In fact, I've probably tried it more than I've tried to learn anything else in the world. And, um, I am giving up on it. I've decided my excuse is that my number one skill probably in the world is just English language. That's probably the thing that I'm better at than anything else Mm -hmm. is English. Mm -hmm. And so then when I try to speak Spanish, it puts me at a total disadvantage. You know, it's like (laughs) getting rid of your, your, the one thing that you're, that you're good at. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's it. I'm done. I'm not trying anymore. I'll speak a little bit, you know, here and there, just the the things that I know. But uh, no, I'm I'm giving up on my dream of becoming fluent someday in Spanish. Uh, no, I totally relate. I, I I grew up skiing when I was a little kid. We we did a lot of skiing in Utah and Colorado. And um, then when snowboarding became really popular, I tried that for two years, but I just couldn't get as good as I was at skiing, and so yeah. I just gave up. And I was a loser because I was a skier, but whatever. That's what. That's, yeah, that, that's that's totally true, though. Yeah, it makes it easier to quit it because you've got this other thing that you do so much better. It's kind of weird. It makes it harder to learn the snowboarding because you're good at an analogous thing. Like, huh. yeah, you want to be where you were at. Or oh well, okay. So last question: um, When should I sign up for the June LSAT now or later? Yeah, I like this one. And I think it's a good one to end on. Um, As people, as listeners hear this episode, the June LSAT is going to be, what, three or four or five months away, something like that. Um, And you have a choice. There certainly is no need to sign up right away. You could definitely put in a month or two of studying and assess where you're at and decide before you make the leap or the investment, um, but you also could sign up now, get yourself on the list right away for a testing center that you find friendly. Um, if you've heard good things about a certain test center or bad things about another test center, it might be important to you to get uh, yourself registered early for the test center that you want. Also, signing up early can give you some benefits in terms of your motivation to study. Um, for me, I think, yeah, I would have to have a test date on my calendar before I would do any real serious studying. Yeah. That's just me, and I think that's probably uh, a lot of people are going to be like that. So if that's you, if you're going to procrastinate, and if you really want to get it done, especially if you want to apply this coming cycle, you know, if you, if you want to apply in 2015 for 2016 admission, then yeah, taking the June LSAT would be a really good idea. So maybe committing to it now, getting on the studies plan now uh, would set you up for success. Worst case, you can always push it 
the deadline for rescheduling is like three weeks ahead of the test. It's about the same. It's the, it's the same day as the late registration deadline, right? Uh, so maybe it's three or four weeks before the test. That sounds right. I don't know. Yeah, and it, it does cost um, eighty dollars or something like that to move your test date to push it back. And of course, it would be a waste of money to do that unnecessarily or to do that repeatedly. But eighty dollars in the grand scheme of things is you know not much. That's going to pay for twenty minutes with a good LSAT tutor. And if it gives you any more motivation at all, it might be worth it to just go ahead and sign up and then, yeah, push it if you if you have to. What do you think? Yeah, no, I I agree completely. I think that signing up, especially given the fact we have four months, this is a good time to start shooting for it, and it makes it more real. So you're really gonna prepare for it. The other, the two things I would add is, I think it sometimes helps for people to. If you're starting to study now, and this is this is about February, the beginning of February, looking forward to the June test, is to imagine taking the test in the middle of April. The reality is you're going to take it at the beginning of June, but if you imagine that the test is at the beginning of April, I think it gets people going faster now, and that you know at at the pace that they kind of probably should be going at, so that they're not cramming at the end make the test yeah. even more closer than it actually is um, the second thing is uh, in terms of test centers it, it does make a difference uh, at least I know here in DC, the DC area uh, American University is by far better and one of the reasons it's better is that students get to sit down at large tables whereas a lot of the other test centers have small folding desks so I would say just go online, search for LSAT test center reviews, and in your area, start looking through them and see if you can figure out a test center that has a large desk uh, versus a small fold-out desk. Um, yeah, or whatever other test center things are important to you. I, I think the fold-out desk thing, I mean, I took mine on a fold-out desk and did fine, so I'm not, I don't know that that's, it doesn't have to be that big of an issue. For some people, it is a bigger issue. If it's a big issue for you, then yeah, then you're going to make your decision based on the size of the desk. Other things that could be really important are just location, parking, um, and whether or not the t this testing center has been administered well in the past. I know that uh, in San Francisco, USF and San Francisco Law School have both, uh, I've heard nothing but great reports from both of those schools about the way that the test has been run when it's been there. But at Hastings, I've heard horrible reports about the way the test has been run when it's been there. Uh, including putting people in really uncomfortable situations like standing outside because they haven't opened the doors, um, not allow you know people not having access to the bathrooms because they haven't opened the doors yet, uh, lining people up in the fire escape stairwell exit, w which made people claustrophobic and uncomfortable, D different things like that 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 would for sure make me avoid. Um, a center with bad uh, whatever, bad whatever it is. Uh, it could be desks, could be whatever. Yeah. I wanted to follow on yeah. um, one point. I really liked your idea of shooting for a mid-April LSAT, even though there is no mid-April LSAT. Mm -hmm. But just to give yourself this intermediate deadline to shoot for. And one benefit there is that you would be able to uh, more accurately replicate your the test center, the, the test day feeling when you go to do your full proctored practice tests, right? So somebody could look, if you're in DC, you could look at Ben's course schedule for the June classes. I don't know if you've already got those posted or not, yep. Ben. I mm -hmm. assume you do because you're organized, um, <laughs> more organized than I usually am. But anyway, uh, a student could pick out a mid-April Saturday practice test in your class and start treating that as if that were going to be the real LSAT. Yeah, yeah. And try to get themselves as ready as they possibly can for that test, see if they can, you know, I mean, I want to hit my goal, or whatever, if you have a goal, but I want to I want to get a good LSAT score that would get me into the law schools that I want to go to on April, whatever it is. And then, yeah, whether or not they hit it, they'll learn something, they'll feel maybe a little bit more anxiety on the day of that practice test, which is actually a good thing because uh, we want to get people desensitized to that kind of test day anxiety. 
And if you go that route, then yeah, you, you'll still have two more months of studying, two more months of instruction, um, two more months of guidance and handholding from Ben. So that, that does seem like it would be a, a really sensible strategy if you started now. Nothing but good things happen if you, if you start early on your prep. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's an excellent idea. I hadn't thought about that. Just like plan on taking that test, make it even more real than just a kind of a, a you know, mid April thing. Like actually, well, yeah, because otherwise it's really easy for people to be like, well, the class just started or I, I just started or I'm just still trying to kind of figure this out. And then, then it's not like they're, I don't know, they're not, it's not going to be as real of a practice test, I guess. Yeah. Well, excellent. I mean, that was all the questions. Did you have anything else? No, I do not have anything else. Um, looking forward to a little bit of time off. Do you have a break after the February LSAT? Yeah, so the, my next class didn't start until the middle of March, so um, still be meeting with people individually between now and then, but otherwise, yeah, a, a nice break. Um, basically a time to work on the, uh, the games book a little bit more. And, and oh boy! So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about this nice long vacation that I'm going to have, but then, um, right, we do need to get cracking on that. <laughs> We've been promising that's going to come out this uh, this year. I think it's going to. I think we're going to get fired up. Um, listeners, please send us some email. I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben is Ben at strategyprep.com. You can go to our website, thinkinglsat.com, to get uh, episodes or to comment on uh, each individual show. You can sign up for our newsletter on thinkinglsat.com. You'll get free updates about the Logic Games book that is going to be released this year. And we're going to be releasing uh, free chapters from that book too. So send us a note, sign up, rate us and review us on iTunes, subscribe on iTunes. Um, Thanks a lot for listening. We've been getting a lot of good emails lately uh, from students, and it's really encouraging to hear that you've gotten some value out of the podcast. So we love hearing those kinds of stories. Anything else, Ben? No, that's it. Thanks so much. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Ben. I'll talk to you next time. Yeah, bye. All right, bye.